0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian, and hope everybody is having a great Thanksgiving weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. U.S. air travel surpassed record 2019 figures. The Federal Aviation Administration cleared Boeing's 737 MAX 10 jet for flight testing. Rheinmetall and Hensold held their capital market days Airbus ponders the future of its defense and aerospace business, and airliners flying over the Middle East and Ukraine report having navigational signals jammed. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abolafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Guys, uh, welcome back to the program. Happy uh, Thanksgiving, Sash. It's great to have uh, the whole team uh, back together again, and we're going to get uh, right into it. Ron, uh, talk to us a little bit about how uh, the group performed on what was a short week with most of the market actually uh, tuned out. What were, you know, how did the group perform and what were the big drivers? Yeah, it was a, it was a quiet, quiet week in the market, obviously, given the, given the holiday.
1: Uh, the S&P, however, was up about a percent. When you look across our group, uh, generally everything did pretty well. Uh, Boeing was a the big winner of large caps on the week. Boeing was up almost six percent. Uh, but the defense stocks fared well too. Lockheed Martin was up, uh, just under two percent. L3 Harris was up almost three percent. General Dynamics was up a percent and a half, as was Northrop. So it was you know broadly a good trading week for uh, aerospace and defense in the U.S. Uh, the 10-year yield uh, was you know bumping around four and a half, you know, four point four six is where it ended the week. Uh, oil ended the week just about where it did last week. WTI at seventy-five, Brent crude at eighty. Uh, and the VIX continued to drop, right? The, the, the index of sort of fear and loathing right. in the market uh, ended ended the week at um, twelve and a half. Um, I think the, the the real story is going to be as we come into this upcoming week. How is the U.S. consumer doing? And you know, what are the early um, uh, projections or you know, data that comes out of uh, you know Black Friday and, and Cyber Monday? Uh, I think you know a lot of investors are just kind of trying to divine from the tea leaves. You know what's going on in the U.S. economy and how the U.S. consumer is doing because the U.S. consumer has been, uh, in large part, kind of holding up the U.S. economy,
0: uh, and it's uh, very interesting, right? Because on the one hand, a lot of inflationary measures are down, gas prices are down, and yet, you know, Americans are responding to you know more sentiment that they're playing this worse, right? Seeing TikTok and social media videos on sixteen-dollar uh, McDonald's meals, right, and so that's playing into sentiment. Where where do you think? Most investors are about where we are and where we're going broadly economically, right? Because I mean, pretty much everybody has been reporting that we're kind of having a soft landing, and even our European uh, allies and partners appear to be navigating their way to to sort of the same point, right? No more interest rate hikes. We we think we've gotten this about right. Yeah, it, it seems like the investment
1: community is that's that's where they're trending. That you know the, the a soft landing might be in the cards, but. It's always you know I think investors always worry when everybody's thinking one way something goes the other way um, so we'll we'll see we'll see how it all goes. You know, I think the real next question probably will be and just to remind everybody I'm, I'm not the economist or the interest rate person. this is just you know Ron's Ron's simple view um, you know the real real question now is you know how how long do rates stay where they are when does the Fed start you know turning down rates and that, that kind of thing and, and that's where the dialogue is. Um, the unwelcome surprise would be, and I don't think most people are thinking this, uh, you know, kind of at the moment, is if we, you know, roll into um, early next year and you, you start to see inflation kick up again. Um, there's a little discussion on, on that, and that would be kind of sort of the out of consensus call right now. But but broadly, I would say most investors are, um, you know, wrapping their minds around, you know, a soft landing, or even if it's not a soft landing, a not so hard hard landing, if that makes sense. Right. Right.
0: Um... Uh, Sash, uh welcome back. It's good to have you on the program with the team. Uh again, give us give us your sense on uh where uh your you know how the group's performing uh in Europe, right? You guys did have a full week uh this week. Uh some folks are uh, uh, reeling in, in Europe because long uh, longtime right-wing firebrand Kurt Wilders uh, is slated to become Holland's next prime minister, which uh, has people's uh, attention. Uh, you know, Lord Cameron, uh, right, so not only is David Cameron uh, in uh, the House of Lords, but he uh it replaced james cleverly as foreign minister right i mean so there's a whole bunch of you know interesting news flow items there uh over the past week or so you know give us your sense on how the group uh, performed and what the big drivers were as inflation also settles down in europe and central bankers work uh you know not not to crater economies but control inflation
2: yeah i mean it was a actually by the end of the week it, it was a much less exciting week in terms of share prices than it felt halfway through the week or so so european um uh, sector was up just under a percent, about 0.7%, 0.8%. Civil stocks up about 1.3% and defense stocks. And this is the real su- surprise. We're on average only up about 0.4%. Um, why was that a surprise? We had some big moves middle of the week. Ryan Mattel, uh, came out with um, increased uh, medium-term uh, financial guidance uh, on their capital markets. So they will come back and talk about this in a minute. But you know, Ryan Mattel popped about 6% uh, on um, Tuesday. Uh, and then gave it all up again during the week. There was a lot of profit taking uh, going on. Um, but, you know, this still ended up sending the week up a percent and a bit. Saab was up a couple of percent. But then um, if you look at the two big underperformers, Hensolt, it was actually a really interesting capital market, say. I can t- I'll talk more about that later. But the shares are off two and a half. And Kinetic, which had really pretty lackluster uh, results um, uh, week before last it uh, was off five percent. Um, there's, just, you know, sort of a bit of a feeling I think in kinetic that their US business is probably more sensitive to continuing resolution than than they would they would like to admit, and you know it's quite hard to keep that business growing at the rate that their European business or actually their UK business is growing at. So it was a very very mixed week overall. Um, best performer actually of the civil stocks was probably Airbus up nearly two percent, um, but you know net. I I would have expected to see much bigger performances on some of the defense stocks, uh, because I certainly came out feeling way more interested in the uh, trajectory of the German defense budget in particular, but actually more broadly European defense, um, having talked to a ton of people in Germany this week. Uh, And do any of the political maneuverings, whether in the
0: UK or what's happening in the Netherlands, shape uh, investors sentiment, right? I mean, there has always been a concern about Sort of rise of right wing parties. What kind of implications does that have for the EU in the future, uh, and even NATO unity? From from your standpoint, were you guys fielding any interesting questions from investors about any of that? We're getting
2: incredible. Yeah, we're getting incredibly few questions from investors about this um, because you know the investors I've I've been talking to this week have all been focused on the you know the news coming out of capital market days and so forth. But I mean, yeah, there is a. I think there is a a broader concern among some investors although it tends to be absolute return investors some some hedge funds that European unity, European support for the war in Ukraine probably isn't as much of a given or may not be as much of a given as, as we stroke they had thought it would be so at its extreme I talked to a couple of investors this week who basically said I'm not going to hold any European defence stocks because the Ukrainians will be forced to sue for peace at some stage in the next few months the day that happens European defence stocks are going to be down 20, 25 percent. And I'm, you know, my portfolio would be would be demolished if that happens. So I'm just not going to take that risk. I can argue and try to until I was blue in the face about just the degree to which Europe in general needs to rearm. But they are really you know worried about, um, uh, you know, Ukraine uh, having to, to sue for peace. And one of the drivers of that would or might be a lack of unity uh, among various NATO countries, particularly European NATO countries, but also, you know, what happens if uh, President Trump gets re-elected?
0: Indeed, and that's a little bit of uh, part of the... Uh, right-wing authoritarian streak, populist streak uh, that that folks are a little bit uh, worried about. We'll come back to Capital Markets Day in a second because I want to get a little bit more of the specifics that we heard from uh, Ryan Metall and Hensolt Management. Richard, Richard, I want to bring you in. Um, We've been talking on this uh, program and you've been talking about this being uh, a good uh, air travel year. And all the way back when you were saying 2023 was going to be the date, I think there was consensus on that. And it appears this year we're breaking that by 10%. Uh, roughly in terms of uh, travel coming back to what the 2019 peak was before the pandemic. Your sense on what all this means because we're seeing all sorts of odd trends happening despite these positive numbers, right? I mean, kind of help us make sense about what's going on and why.
3: Well, you know, um, a lot of the oddness, of course, is just due to the inevitable capacity shortfalls you'd get when you have an unexpectedly strong comeback and, uh, you know, you've got the first recovery In the history of the business where we aren't leading the way we're the last to hire people relative to all the other sectors of the economy we're the last to place orders for stuff relative to other sectors of the economy so whether it's shortfalls in mro or you know crew or whatever else there are all kinds of issues having said that things do appear to be on the mend and uh, again let's be grateful thanksgiving for a really really strong recovery you know another thing you know during the pandemic and, uh, and 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 even just before it, people were concerned about the impact on growth rates. From people, you know, concerned about well, uh, environmental issues, and of course, you had that famous Greta Thunberg thing back in 2019. Uh, you know, I, I much though I'm sympathetic towards the environmental movement, certainly. Um, there's absolutely no evidence (laughs) outside of say northern europe of this phenomenon impacting air travel growth numbers so a lot of people including airbus and boeing and to be fair even uh, even my company have been sort of muting long-term air travel demand growth expectations on the basis of everything from maturing economies sure carbon pricing sure but also environmental concerns concerns i'm not sure that environmental concerns are really playing any kind of role it just seems that uh, people are coming roaring back into the air and, it's, uh, and demand is linked to uh, you know, just the macroeconomics, which right now happen to be pretty strong. Um, I want to uh, ask you a little bit
0: uh, about the FAA and uh, the MAX 10 in a second, but a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our stress coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Let's use this uh, as a uh, bridge. Richard, uh, it, uh, Ron and Sash, do you guys want to uh, uh, weigh in on this? Before we uh, move uh, uh,
2: quickly, weigh in on this before we move to the max uh, ten. I think just a tiny um, follow on to Richard's comments about how you know, air traffic growth is not abating, and hence you know we might actually have to upgrade our forecasts. I suspect that in Europe, the the the, the way that governments will try to control this will either be by tax, although that's very very difficult to do, uh, or politically incredibly difficult to do, or more likely, as we've already seen in the Netherlands, there will start to be constraints on. Um, uh, capacity at key airports just to try to, um, and of course what that will do indirectly is push prices up uh, and I think that will be the, the really interesting way that uh, governments try to respond to this to try to keep air traffic control down. We, we've seen uh, the Dutch do this with Schiphol so far um, and the fact that the Heathrow uh, third runway probably won't go ahead uh, I think is going to it'll force ticket prices up and it will eventually but very badly uh, constrain growth Uh, Richard, uh, let me uh, get your uh,
0: sense, Uh, right? I mean, the FAA uh, has cleared the Max 10 uh, to uh, start uh, flight testing. This was a little bit later than everybody had anticipated and certainly Boeing had anticipated. Um, Talk to us about what's at stake, right? What the nature of the delay was uh, and, you know, how long we expect this process uh, to take and the impact of this jet uh, on a very competitive market
3: yeah um first and foremost you know what the max 10 can do for Boeing. well it's 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 a pretty good jet um you know and in terms of economics it's uh it might even be better than the a321 neo it's just that it doesn't have anything like the range and payload capability of the 321 neo so yes it does go more or less head to head but uh people consistently show that they would like to you know that pay a little extra for the 321 neo and the orders are my God, what is it, like eight, nine to one or something like that in favor of the 321 neo? So it's certainly welcome news that the track is still on course for certification next year, um, but it doesn't impact competitiveness realities. So good news, certainly. It'll be even better on news, I think, if, uh, if as according to plan, Boeing can get the max 7 fully certified this coming month. That's the plan, you know, before the end of the year actually get the Max 7 fully certified with uh service entry early next year, that I think would be a, a significant milestone because of course the two uh, bookends, if you will, of the Max variant family, the 7 and 10, were delayed by, of course, the necessary cockpit and other changes associated with the uh the you know the max grounding. Uh, so being back on track, I think we'll will we'll galvanize some confidence there. But unfortunately for Boeing, doesn't change the market reality that the 321neo uh, continues to be the most popular jet we've seen in our lifetimes.
0: If the 321neo has greater payload, greater range, why do you still say that in some respects the Max 10 is a better jet? What
3: uh, not, not, a, not a better jet, per se. It's better economics, as, uh, as uh, Brother Ron would say. Um, you know, it's just less metal to push through the air uh it's it's lighter uh, you know smaller engine core smaller airframe everything like that the economics of the max 10 if you don't need the full range and payload are going to be excellent you know like like all stretched versions of a uh, a smaller jet tend to be you know you just get better operating economics when you stretch a jet uh however people are buying the 321 neo primarily for the range it's like continue to find out, I, I don't know about you, but I seem to be flying across the Atlantic in a 321neo more and more these days. It used to be an oddity to fly across the pond in a uh, single aisle jet. Now it's almost becoming common. So people are buying it for that. And of course, other intra-Asia and Middle East Europe and whatever else, um and it's proven insanely popular so you know the max 10 has is going to have really good economics but that's not why people are buying the 321 neo it's more about the the most capable single aisle you can
0: get um it, it's uh interesting that i think i've only made it across the atlantic i want to say twice in single aisle jets so that's uh, really uh, interesting and exciting that you're doing that more our, our kids do you know when they fly Icelandic uh carriers uh to uh to cross the ocean and I think right Aer Lingus has some single aisle service am I, I right just, about that
3: uh, I just the other day flew Aer Lingus but also TAP Portugal and uh Air Canada and uh, right. numerous others are putting you know single aisles onto uh onto North Atlantic I, I, interesting uh I, I, for I, I, those of us who fly, who fly like Unite. oh go ahead yeah Brian. can I add I mean
1: and um and United's been flying five sevens across the lineup for years.
3: That's right. Continental started that, I believe, uh, with the uh, uh, Newark to Berlin and a couple of other routes. They really pioneered. Yeah, them.
1: if you, you go Newark to um, Edinburgh, Newark to you know Berlin, Newark to um, Hamburg, anywhere you pick. I mean, there's a whole bunch of cities that they've been operating Newark to. You know, I, I guess they're sort of secondary cities in Europe. They've been doing it on five sevens for years, years and years.
0: And, and- And 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 those are and those are the only um, single aisles that I've ever taken across the uh, Atlantic uh, because I never had the pleasure of flying a seven hundred and seven across the Atlantic, uh, even though I did fly on a seven hundred and seven once across our great uh, nation, uh, which was still a Pan Am one adorned in the whole Clipper class thing in the back that they (laughs) wheeled out uh, because our regular uh, airplane broke down. Anyway, uh, Ron, what what's your sense on uh, sort of the uh, the max 10 and the next steps and its importance in the market, right? I mean, Richard, you know, was, you know, quoted you, uh, right. Saying that, Hey, you know, the brother Ron would say, uh, you know, depending on the application, its economics are actually better than a 321, even if the 321 has greater range and payload kind of your sense on the impact of this and sash, uh, then yours before we go to capital markets day and have a little bit of a defense, uh, discussion. Go on, Ron.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the beauty of the max 10, um, it doesn't have as much range as uh, its, you know, its competitor with the uh, A321LR or XLR. However, it's lighter, right? So if you're going to operate it on, you know, I think, you know, Delta bought a bunch of them to operate up and down the East Coast and kind of call it, um, you know, from the East Coast to the middle of the country, the middle of the country to the West Coast. It's suited really well for that, right? So it depends on where you want to operate the airplane. Um, There's probably some select, North Atlantic routes where you can run it, but it's going to be more range constrained. But for a domestic, larger, narrow body, and if you want to call it domestic Europe, um, maybe that's not the right terminology, but if you're going to fly it within kind of a a more constrained area, I mean, it's a wonderful airplane for that. Um, And that's, you know, the the airlines that have ordered it, that's what they've ordered it for, largely, right? Uh,
0: uh, Sash, your sense on the impact of this jet on the market and on Airbus and the entire competitive
2: dynamic? I think it's a really it's a really interesting point that Ron makes. Um, but here's the, here's the interesting thing: airlines have had the choice of the Max Ten or the three twenty one neo for nearer ten years than five, um, and the order numbers speak themselves. Airlines, um, in, you know, particularly in Europe, just don't appear interested in the Max Ten. It's a, it it hardly exists um, in backlogs. Uh, it hardly exists in in airlines forward planning. So. Airlines appear to be, in some cases, happy just to have the flexibility of a very high-capacity aircraft that they can fly on medium-haul routes, they can fly on very long-haul routes, and they can flex day by day, route by route, rather than hyper-optimizing their, uh, you know, their, their fleet structure to the, the the super best performer for a given uh, route pair. You know, I mean, the, the airline you would expect to order something like the Max 10 if its economics are absolutely drop dead. Number one would be Lufthansa. Lufthansa has never been worried about taking another fleet fleet type in or, or you know a, a aircraft type in. Haven't even looked at it. They just go off and buy a um, a, a ton of three twenty one. So when Lufthansa buys, then I think the Max Ten is going to make it. Otherwise, I just think the order book uh, speaks for itself. And
0: a quick reminder to our audience to check out our award winning weekly podcasts, Canvas Ships, hosted by Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by. HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co host with our very own JJ uh, Gertler. Sash, uh, take us away on uh, European defense. You talked a little bit about those uh, sentiments. Uh, both Ryan Rheinmetall and Hensoldt had their capital markets days uh, last week, and you also had a chance to talk to European uh, investors, and you gave us a little bit of a sense. Uh, on sort of the flawed reasoning uh, that they're using, not the first time investors sort of look at the facts and get them wrong. Give give us give us your sense on what the major takeaways from their uh, from the capital markets days were, but also how this sort of ties into the broader European uh, defense narrative. You know, which which happens at a time when you know the Ukrainians are delivering blows to the Russians and exacting a huge uh, toll uh, on the battlefield and the Russians over the weekend have mounted a successful wave of strikes, uh, or at least a large wave, or the largest wave uh, of strikes on Kiev in a long time. It
2: was very, very interesting spending about a part of four days in Germany uh, talking to companies, talking to investors. Uh, takeaways from Rheinmetall: first of all, they've raised their financial guidance, medium term, 2026 financial guidance uh, for revenues by 10%, but for profitability by 20%. That's big. That's why the shares popped during the week, even though they gave a, a whole load of that up. This will be a 12 plus billion dollar, you know, 11 billion euro, almost pure defense business uh, out in uh, mid decade. Um, and that's a business that will have more than doubled uh, since, since before the war. Where's the volume coming from? Really, too. I mean, we know about the vehicle story. Um, very interesting. They're already producing large quantities of the. Um, Uh, Lynx uh, infantry fighting vehicle for uh, Hungary looks like some more uh, customers on the way boxer is a great business panther tank seems to be now close to a a launch order but it's ammunition that is driving Rheinmetall at the moment Um, and what I was fascinated by was that they are more optimistic about ammunition volumes they are will have doubled their ammunition volumes of 155 millimetre shells, which is you know, really what, what is driving things at the moment, and that's what the Ukrainians need, they will have doubled their capacity from today to 2026 uh, to 700,000 rounds uh, a year. Put that in perspective, the U.S. will only produce about 1.2 million rounds in that year. So Ryan Rital will be about um, uh, two thirds of the size of U.S. production. If you look at all the other European munitions companies, Rheinmetall will be two uh, thirds of the size of the whole of European ammunition production. So it really is a giant in this. Why is that important? Well, financially, the drop through is huge. They have the plant, it's all invested in, they're putting more shifts on, um, but they don't have to, you know, there's, the depreciation gets spread over a massively greater number of uh, rounds produced. And so their margins, they're going to be making margins. Well into the 20%. Uh, their, tar- their target is 26% margins. That's eye-watering stuff uh, financially. Um, as an aside, the other thing that really surprised me was their air defense business, which somewhere between triples and uh, and quadruples over the same period. Everybody is going back and realizing they need low-level air defense. And one of the ways you do that is with high high-velocity cannon, uh, uh 30, 35 millimeter cannon which can take out some drones and a lot of cruise missiles and so forth. And that's a that's an absolute boom market. And then in the background somewhere, Europe needs to buy a ton more guided rockets for the GMRS and high-mars systems. Um, and interestingly, uh, European companies are hedging their bets by uh, buying or backing the Israeli Pulse system as well, just in case Lockheed Martin Northrop Grumman can't actually deliver on rocket motors and uh, and fuses and, and warheads and so forth. So. Uh, You know, I was very, very interested by that pushback from investors. A lot of these ammunition contracts are effectively what in the States you call IDIQ contracts. We we had this debate a couple of weeks ago. I mean, in Europe, they're called frame contract contracts. Um, And one of the things about an IDIQ contract is um, the quantity can be zero as well as 100,000. And so European investors are some European investors are just worried that you can't bank on those contracts beyond the next two years or so. We'll see. Um, Hensolt, really different company. Hensold is a long-term systems engineering business. Um, the one bit area where they have high volume production is actually in very, very capable air defense and missile radars. They've got a radar called TRML4D. Uh, in part, it uh, is the radar for the, the German RST uh, missile system. But they're also just shipping them direct to Ukraine for use with other missile systems. Looks like the Ukrainians are, are networking them into networking in the Midwest 300s, networking them into, networking them into NASAND, uh Patriot, whatever they can to give them better situational awareness. They're producing these on spec, in volume, dozens of the things. And this is a, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 million euros per missile, but sorry, per radar. But I've never seen such high volume of uh, big ground-based air defense radars in in my career. Quite remarkable. The other thing. The Pegasus Signals Intelligence uh, aircraft, it's a billion and a half programme. It's their second biggest pro- programme, going incredibly well. This is going to be a German equivalent of river joint, but then a global 6,000 uh, uh, know, aircraft. And it looks like that programme is going to be doubled in size. So Germany's going to have six of these aircraft by the end of the decade. That's quite remarkable. That would be the equivalent of all the other Signals Intelligence aircraft in Europe put together. Um, and I thought that was really impressive. Uh,
0: it is uh, it, uh, it is uh, imp- impressive indeed. And it's also uh, tremendous to see sort of the production rates uh, come up to um, where they have to be given, where Russian production rates are. And we have to figure out where all of us are uh, next year when Ukraine needs our help, uh, given that uh, fighting there is, is, is bogging down and unfortunately has been as much as we hate to use the word stalemated, stalemated. Uh, Ron and, and Richard, just your guys' quick sense on what the defense sentiment is the Ukraine sentiment is now right. I mean, we're operating in the United States on a continuing resolution till January, but there could be more sort of fiscal antics. Uh, even it looks, even if it looks like uh, sane Republicans will band together with sane Democrats uh, to at least ensure the the right thing ultimately happens. But Ron, kind of give us your sense, and Richard, yours, on on how you see these markets emerging really quickly before we go to whether or not airbus is going to end up divesting its defense and space business uh and then uh obviously the question of jamming which which is an important one as well uh, start us off ron and then richard I think most investors are trying to you know
1: pick their positioning into 24. um i think there's broad awareness that the world is you know, become less stable and you know, for, for all the reasons we've talked about many times um that u.s budgets probably do have some upward pressure on them um, for, again, for all the reasons we've talked about. Um, and investors are focusing, I, I think, on trying to pick a name or two that they want to be exposed to in the next year. Um, but it's tricky. I mean, when you when you think about valuation of the defense sector, um, that's where you really get a, a disparity of, of views on, you know, what names are expensive, what names are, and should we be thinking about cash flow, EBITDA, this, that, There has been a worry, I think, broadly in the investment community, that most of the you know the the large defense contractors and even some of the smaller ones have gotten themselves into contracts a couple of years ago that do have some sort of fixed price aspect to them, and inflation actually hurt them on that. So there's a worry that you know kind of broadly across the sector that there's pressure on margins because of that. Um, That being said. I think investors do realize defense stocks tend do tend to do well during presidential election years, and there's I think there's just a fair amount of thinking and work and you know pencil scratching and just trying to figure out where where the best place to be would be into next year.
0: Richard,
3: yeah, you know I mean I understand where is coming from in terms of looking at European concerns over dispen- defense defense spending and uh, and defense companies, but that's really to my mind just Europe. I mean, the upward pressure on global defense spending began uh, before Russia's Ukraine invasion and has really gathered steam, largely driven by the, uh, you know, buildup in the the Western Pacific and now also the Middle East, which one of the biggest export markets really hasn't debated, you know, for other key export markets like India. So, uh, you know, given that Europe tends to be a bit more dependent upon home markets with the exception of France, France is more export driven, but uh, certainly companies in, in, in Germany tend to be a bit more uh, you know focused on what's gone on over there uh, in, in NATO. Um, you know, everywhere else I, I think is, is, is driven by more global sentiment and uh, we have fewer of the, you know uh, corporate concerns or I should say investor concerns about uh, what you can invest in over here. Uh, in the U.S. So I, I think it continues to be uh, a lot stronger in general and where and I should say more durable, um, less vulnerable to uh, to, you know, changes in the uh, in, in the political roadmap. Um, you know, it, at the end of the day, China is the uh, the pacing threat that will guide defense spending upward.
0: Um, going going back to something earlier uh, that Sash said earlier in the conversation, right? I mean, if if uh, you know Americans elect Donald Trump as America's next president, it is going to cause a massive surge in European defense spending because of concerns. Uh, about um, you know whether or not the United States will be there for its transatlantic allies. So you know in a, in a, in a sense Emmanuel Macron <laughs> might be proven uh, right uh, on this on the uh, or you know what you know what Merkel's concerns were. Even though it was Olaf Scholz that actually acted on uh, the Titan vendor and and added spending in the wake of the Ukraine war. Sash, uh, talk to us a little bit about Airbus's uh, defense and space business. Mike Scholhorn has been doing you know has been working hard to sort of you know improve the prospects of the business. Uh, there is a, a new tanker variant the KC30 neo uh, that the company is working on delivering as well right I you know, an increased payload range uh, and and uh, um, uh, you know efficiency for that uh, aircraft uh, should it uh, you know move ahead but kind of walk us through what airbus does next here because that business has really uh, been uh, challenged we, we saw airbus spin off Hensolt, which has become a going concern what's next for the defense and space business and what are the arguments on either side whether or not it stays in airbus gets spun out gets sold off what what's what's the sense there
2: yeah okay so i mean here's the context um airbus ceo giumfori uh, was also the uh, ceo of the commercial aircraft business um that was a role that he um, retained during the um pandemic because he felt that you know it, he had to have absolute hands on control of it, and you know, to be clear, Airbus Commercial Aircraft is the dominant uh, part of Airbus Group. Um, but he has stepped uh, aside from that role. Uh, Christian Scherer has been uh, appointed now, um, at, uh, moved up from being just head of uh, commercials, effectively head of sales of, of Airbus, to actually being the, the CEO of Airbus Commercial Aircraft. Guillaume Forrey said he's going to focus on a uh, group-wide strategy, which arguably is what the CEO of a group should be doing. And, um, his biggest problem at the moment uh, is Airbus Defence and Space, actually in you know, in loss in the um, uh, first nine months of this year. It's got this horrible structural um, change between relatively high volume production programmes that were making some money um, in space as well as in uh, military aircraft to having a lot of development programmes, Eurodrone. Um, uh, Ariane Six, the uh, uh, the rocket, uh, SCAF, the uh, uh, Franco-German fighter, none of those even in a, in a good year. Again, to make decent profits uh, while you're developing them, you make money on um, on production. But actually, because they've had big problems in some of their satellite businesses as well, it's been been way worse than that. And uh, there was a very consistent um, feedback from people I spoke to in Germany this week of you know wondering whether one of the things that the foreign might look at next next year would be to spin off defense and space altogether on well, the basis that it doesn't add to airbus's um, appeal to investors actually it subtracts from it uh and uh, it's very very political and he airbus neither actually need that sort of politics i think this would be a story. i mean i would be very uh, surprised if the german government bought this personally i think the german government wants a big um, uh, national defense company. Although, you know, they seem to be spreading the, the the work, the contracts, much wider. Airbus actually has done really badly out of the 100 billion special fund. It got a bunch of Eurofighters. But otherwise, uh, the you know, Germany went and bought F-35s, CH-47s, P-8s, all from the US, for which Airbus gets zero content. So um, right. I can see why, as a rational man, uh, I mean, Fari would think, why should we bother? I think that, you know, local politics, German politics, will be altogether less rational and probably rather more heated. Watch the space. Uh, will be uh, fascinating uh, indeed. I'm going
0: to let uh, either Ron or Richard pick this uh, question up. Uh, about uh, jamming. Um, jamming, obviously, in any war zone is always problematic. The Russians have misbehaved over the Baltic by using jammers to interfere with air travel. Uh, now we have a hot war over Ukraine and a hot war, uh, even though we've got uh, a brief uh, truce uh, in Israel's war on Hamas. Uh, and there looks like, you know, whether it's Iranians or anyone else, um, is, is misbehaving. Uh, as well interfering with uh, air transport uh, across the Middle East and as well as parts of Europe. What does this mean for air carriers? Because we have had these sort of issues before where folks have got to fly around conflict zones uh, and that ends up being very disruptive, uh, right? Airlines want to fly direct routes over places, not take massive diversions. Uh, so Ron or Richard, which, whichever one of you want to grab this apple, just your sense on you know what this means in you know, a world where aircraft no longer have navigators, they, you know, have multiple backups on backups on backups, but ultimately jamming, you know, is something that is bothering air crews. And at the end of the day, those air crews are responsible for passenger safety.
3: Yeah, I mean, the number of, uh, shall we say, operations other than war or potential threats uh, or whatever else is proliferating faster than we can sign treaties to prevent this sort of thing. You know, the same week, of course, you saw the Chinese use uh, high-powered sonars against Australian divers in the South Pacific. Uh, you've, You've got a whole, there's this massive spectrum of possible threats and you know we we just don't have the sort of regulatory structure needed to deal with it especially when you know sometimes non-state actors are involved uh so this is just this represents a number of another yet another challenge that needs to be solved with some kind of international treaty or some kind of negotiations I I wish you luck on that. But these are
0: bad actors. So I don't know how you're going to actually like, you know, whether it's Iranians who are doing it or, or, or Russians, right. But I mean, I I would agree that you have to have some kind of mechanism. Ron, do you want to take a quick bite bite at this as well before we go and whether or not there's sort of a more elegant technical solution to this? Or are we going to be welcoming back navigators into cockpits uh, and using sextants again? No, I mean, I don't think we'll be doing
1: that. But I mean, now that you know that this sort of thing's happening, um, you have to come up with a backup system. Um, and that's that's probably doable. I mean, there's enough things spinning around the earth, there's enough signals um, that, that, you, that you could do it. But you just have to have a, a, a some sort of backup system. I mean, the reality, the sad reality is in the, in the end, and I think you were alluding to this, Fargo. I mean, if somebody wants to um, damage the system, they can damage the system. Right. So, in in the end, you know, just basic airmanship, um, uh, airpersonship is going to matter. You know, they, you know, know, aviators will have to aviate and that's what they do. Right. So, um, if you lose GPS or whatever else, then you're kind of back to navigating how you navigate without that stuff. Uh, But that's what they're trained to do. So, that's what they'll need to do. But hopefully,
3: it doesn't come to that. You know, one thing I would just quickly add is that we've been positing uh, possible backup systems for a loss of GPS, you know, maybe due to some sort of, uh, you know, space military action or just, you know, or just jamming like this, some sort of terrestrial based navigation system uh, like we used to have before GPS was invented a couple decades ago. So, you know, could this accelerate something that has been in the works for some time? Yes, uh, absolutely.
0: Uh, You've got your hand up, Sash. Go ahead.
2: I, I completely agree with Ron that this becomes an issue of sort of basic airmanship. I wonder whether modern, relatively young pilots have got sufficient airmanship to to have the you know, personal bandwidth to be able to monitor the GPS uh, INS if if fitted and to spot discrepancies and then uh, know how to work the problem. It's you know that I mean that that is old fashioned airmanship, but may not be modern airmanship. I mean one other point just to give. Um, uh, you know, listeners, an, an idea of, of how difficult the navigation issues are more broadly because of conflict. I flew uh, to, uh, we well, back from Kenya uh, to the UK recently. Normally, you'd fly in a great circle route up um, up east Africa, over Sudan, over Egypt, over the Mediterranean, diagonally across Europe, you go home. We flew due west uh, to the Democratic Republic of Cong- Congo, and then pretty much due north through Algeria. And then Western France, because we had to avoid Sud- uh, Ethiopia, Sudan, and en- um, anything within range of uh, Yemen, Israel, um, and so forth. And it was an it was an astonishing uh, rerouting that added about forty minutes longer to the to to the, the flight than it should have done. It looked quite surreal on the uh, on the moving map this way. Uh,
0: and uh, in uh, thirty seconds, you weren't able to join us last week, where we had a conversation about. Uh, General uh, Atomics Aeronautical Systems, new Mojave short takeoff and landing variant of the Predator, uh, making history on HMS Prince of Wales, uh, landing and, and and taking off. And something that I know uh, that Admiral Sir Tony radikin when he was first sea lord, he's now chief of defense staff, uh, was talking about the importance of that capability uh, operating on uh, un- greater unmanned capability operating off of uh, Britain's aircraft carriers. Just give us your quick uh, sense on The role aircraft like this could play in the composition of a future naval air wing, but also uh, the future of British air power?
2: I think that, particularly for our naval air wings, we will go for a much greater unmanned component much sooner than people expect. A couple of reasons why. First of all, F 35 is a very, very expensive way of bringing in quite a lot of capabilities onto our carriers, and we probably Uh, neither can afford to nor necessarily wants to buy a ton more F-35s. We've got some very empty carrier decks at the moment, uh, but there's a lot of jobs that need to be done off a carrier, particularly surveillance, but also uh, anti-surface warfare, that are way better done by an unmanned system than uh, by a manned system. The manned systems tend to be quite expensive, albeit they're very, very flexible. So I think this is a really, really innovative way of actually starting to use our carrier decks properly. Uh, filling them up, and you keep the, ex- the, the exquisite high-performing F-35s for the jobs that they and only they can do well, which will be Penetration Strike. Uh, guys, uh, thanks very much. Pleasure is always having you on. Hope you guys
0: have uh, a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on the program again next week. Thanks very much, and thanks to our audience for joining us. We appreciate it very much. Uh, a special thanks to uh, Bell and all of our sponsors for making this, uh, for their generous support that makes this uh, this and our daily program's Uh, possible. I look forward to having you all uh, join us uh, tomorrow for our Look Ahead uh, program. Until then, have a great day, great weekend, and we'll see you again soon. All the best. Take care.